Broadcasting from everywhere and nowhere, the Misfit Crew at Southfleet HQ is proud to bring you the Dive Living Podcast. All right, guys, welcome back to the Softly Podcast, or you like to call it the Die Living Podcast. Today's episode we have is Dr. Medicine uh, Woman Quinn, out of uh, the owner of Clinical Athlete, and he also works with Juggernaut Training Systems. Um, so I'm going to go and have him introduce himself to you guys. Uh, Quinn, the floor is yours. Thanks, George, man. Thanks for having me on. Uh, beautiful intro, the medicine woman. You just had to open with that, right? Uh, I appreciate you. It's an honor. And uh, this is the first time that I, I think I've got to meet this audience, and so I'm super excited. I am a physical therapist down in Orange County, California, and my clinic is attached to Juggernaut Training Systems, which is just uh, a big facility, a big training facility for barbell sport athletes mainly, you know, powerlifters, CrossFit, uh, weightlifting, sport of weightlifting uh, in particular, and uh, kind of anything in between, you know, team sport athletes, we trickle in, we, we, I get tactical athletes in the door, you know, my, my PT office is open to the, to the general public. And so I'm, I'm seeing everything um, within, those, within those spectrums. But my, my background and athletic wise is in the sport of, of weightlifting with the barbell and, and uh, college football. And so, you know, I came this environment of, of just having a, a little office where I can look at somebody's movement or, or, you know, make a tweak here and there. And then we can go out and, and the gym and the training can be our rehab. You know, it's just awesome. It's a perfect scenario for me. Yeah, dude. Um, I like the key point that you said. The first thing you said was movement. Um, I know that the fact when I first met you, you were with Dark Side Strength um, with Ryan Brown. And Ryan Brown's a fellow veteran of mine, also prior grunt. And I remember when I was injured, I needed help. And I remember end up running into you guys on the internet. They didn't know much about juggernaut training systems or Dark Side Strength. But I knew what I was doing. This is going to take us into a topic later on down in the podcast. Um, I was doing nothing but foam rolling and smashing and realizing like, hey, this is the way it was going. And no one knows this, but I was going to start a company called Babyface Mobility. <laughs> nice, dude, you'd probably be rich right now. You've, you've <laughs> up. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I decided not to go that route. And now I'm here where I'm at today. But uh, so I ended up hitting up with you guys and you guys really did put me through a full movement screening via remote, uh, remote program. And that's really kind of got my wheels turning on like the remote programming aspect of everything and really how to look at an athlete in a different realm. Um, and I was really huge and he introduced me to uh, PRI, you know, which was huge for me. Um, and I've been talking about PRI like crazy. And one big thing about you know, going into that realm of everything was that we were trying to recreate better movement for longevity. And a lot of times what happens is a lot of athletes, not just a tactical athlete, but a lot of athletes in general, don't see it for longevity. They want the now, especially now in the sport of competitive fitness mm -hmm. or just fitness in general, we have such a huge social media pushing in the world nowadays that human beings are just so on what's in front of them. And, you know, I really took a step back and was really able to see what you guys did with me there. And then I ended up coming to a Becoming Unstoppable seminar where you and Ryan Brown actually were one of the first guys to actually teach that seminar with Chad. And I remember going through a whole bunch of stuff with you on that. And then I got super lucky and you got super blessed to have me as one of your interns for, uh, for a good summer. And we're, it pretty much was a Juggernaut Training Systems internship. Um, and it was the very first one. And I was able to really... Um, 
get really in depth with you. I really pretty much went through mini PT school in 12 weeks along with the FMS, which is functional movement screening course with you at the same time. We learned from the floor all the way up. And ever since then I've taken off with it. And then, you know, I implemented it into my gym that I used to own CrossFit Double Barrel. And it was one of the first gyms in San Diego, besides what you were doing to implement breathing movement work and PRI into everything into the gym to see it. And I saw a huge increase in proper movement pattern in that gym. And they still do it now to this day, even though I'm not part of it. Um, and you know, where I want to go with this is what really got your wheels spinning in your brain to really get you into understanding movement as a long-term instead of the short-term because of the background that you came from? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, it started in physical therapy school when I, so I played, I played college football and I, I didn't have any acute injuries. It was all like just kind of wear and tear. It was like the, you know, I was having anterior knee pain the, the, the entire time with squats with my, I was a defensive back. So I was backpedaling with the running all. So I was getting all that you know, after football, I started in the sport of weightlifting, which was around the time that I started physical therapy school. Now I'm trying to learn how to overhead squat, you know, snatch. We were doing that stuff in, with, in college, but now I want to over, you know, be able to snatch more weight and go lower. And so it was like, at the same time that I'm learning in physical therapy school, my wheels are turning on how I can position myself differently, like literally position my body. How can I get into these positions that I, my body just doesn't seem to want to get into? And so in in physical therapy school, a lot of the experience, honestly, was one day a lecture, we would learn uh, some type of manual therapy system or arbitrary technique that some guy made up in 1987. And then the next day, it would be like the, this system that this guy made up. And the next day would be like this manual technique is good. Now, so it was just like this mishmash of things that you know i'm like all right well i guess i'll just stretch out my fascia and that'll get me to be able to snatch more weight you know what i mean but it just never worked and i was like you was uh spending literally an hour warming up i mean a a band was hooked to every joint of my body i had a foam roller and lacrosse ball just just in every crevice and orifice of my body (laughs) thinking that i was gonna be and then i would go and train and, and then my movement wouldn't change nothing you know it wouldn't be any different and so I, that was, I mean, that kind of got my wheels turning. It, it just, it was more of a red flag because I still didn't really understand the mechanisms because I, the way that we were being taught, it was very, it was very passive and kind of structurally based. Like we can mold our bodies very easily and passively with the skill of a practitioner's hands or this implement, you know, and you know, it was honestly, it wasn't until after physical therapy school or like kind of towards the tail end of my final year there that I started to to understand the mechanisms of what does actually change tissue, what doesn't change tissue, what changes motor patterns. And it came down to much more of the basics of literally practicing the movements more. And so like just in its, in its simplest terms, had I taken, and I'm sure you experienced this too, had I taken that hour of warm up of just you know, useless passive things or, or generally what I thought was useless wasn't giving me much of an effect. If I took that hour and just did more of the movements that I was trying to train, I would, I would have had a much greater effect, much faster because our body learns specificity by doing the specific thing that we're trying to do. Now, sometimes the movement itself is a bit too complex for your body to learn to like, I couldn't, you know, I could just throw a bar over my head and receive in a full overhead squat the way I wanted to, but I could work components. I could work regressions of the overhead squat and certain variations of the squat that were lighter 
not as fast, not as complex. And I spent a lot of time practicing those regressions and then I would build. It was basically like, I mean, it's just like shooting a free throw. You have to do a drill. You have to do something that regards the, the position itself. And so what I, what I started to figure out is that I could trim out a lot of that extra passive stuff and substitute it with more active variations. And, I was, and then I was starting to see changes in my positioning. It was almost as if I was given new joints, you know, and I wasn't, I wasn't directly trying to change my joint structure in any way. It was just, it was just uh, practicing movements. Yeah, and, and the huge part about that, dude, is, and, and I'm going to go back. I actually just got done doing a coach's certification through Training Think Tank with Max L. Hodge of those guys. Um, and Softly helped me out to get through it, dude. And they put out a movement course that was super, super – um how do you say it was vital to like me like it filled in so many holes for me because of the fact like I went through so much with you but it really still was I still was missing like a whole bunch of like you know little spots here and there and like what I wanted to know more was why are these why are we creating these long-term effects just by doing a 90-90 breathing into a sideline clam or into a half inning split squat with a kettlebell press or even with a PVC pipe overhead in a split squat position with a, with a front foot. I was like trying to really figure that out, right? And what I ended up coming to understanding was is we were actually keeping – so everyone was so used to going 110% or being at a 10 for movement, right? Never, no one ever understood that, hey, movement actually needs to be done if you want to get better at it at a 1 or a 2. So the way I look at it on a spectrum, right, we look at the spectrum here at, at, at a 10 is your sympathetic state is really high. And then on a one or a parasympathetic state is, is the key where we want it to be. And what I started understanding and learning was, is like, when we get into a very low parasympathetic state, we open up the prefrontal cortex, right? So which ends up helping create long-term movement because it's like replaying this in their head, just as if they were in a high stress environment, it snaps and they don't know how to do it. They just go back to what they've been taught. So if we can teach them in this low stress environment how to move, like you talked about, like you said you couldn't snatch your, let's just say you just couldn't snatch the proper way or receive a barbell the way you wanted um, whenever you're hitting those heavier weights. But as you started moving back and regressing and refixing and reteaching yourself how to move, you started seeing changes in catching um, your weight. And this takes me into, it's pretty much just, you change movement variability and how you move when you catch a heavy load. Yeah. It, this is the, I mean, these are the, the principles of motor learning, you know, just, yeah. just motor skill acquisition, any, any, forget motor learning for a second, just any skill. Like if I'm trying to learn math, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be at my best. If I'm, if I'm stressed out about my job, if I didn't sleep, if, uh, it's hot as hell. I'm like sweating my ass off and I'm trying to learn this new like math skill or something like that. We're gonna have a terrible time, right? And then it's not, I'm, it's not going to stick. It's the same with movement. So if you're trying to learn a new skill, let's try, I'm, I'm saying I'm trying to learn how to shoot a free throw. If I, just because I can hit three free throws in a row for the first time ever, doesn't mean I'm ready to be stuck in game seven of the NBA finals with a hundred thousand people watching me and you know, the, the millions of dollars on the line, I'll shrink, like I'll go, I'll forget completely what I learned. It's <laughs> movement, overhead squat. It doesn't matter. If you're, if you're trying to learn something new, it has to be in an environment in which the threat is very low. You can relax. Like you said, you can take the information in, you can be calm you can practice. This is actually where being very conscious in the moment yeah. is, is helpful. Um, and as you get, as you gain skill acquisition or motor skill acquisition, in this case, whatever the movement is, then you can start layering on different variables. 
I can go heavier. So intensity is a variable. Speed is I can move faster now. You know, I can throw, learn how to throw a ball. I throw, I'm going to go slow. I'm going to go real easy and just practice the technique. But as I gain skill, now I can throw, I can uh, put velocity on the same technique. If I try to throw too hard, my technique reverts back to where it was. And then I, so I have to dial down that variable. Velocity is my trigger. A golf swing. I can be real smooth and slow. Oh, I think I got it. But then as soon as I try to go hard, then my trajectory is off, right? So I've got to throttle back. So intensity is a trigger. Um, speed is a trigger. Fatigue. Yeah, sure. I can do this skill uh, when I'm fresh, but what happens when I'm tired? You know, can I shoot that gun when I'm tired? It's, that, that's the type of thing. So any, anything is, is what we're looking at. We learn in environments that we can relax in, that we feel safe, relatively safe in, that we can practice and be conscious, and then we layer on these things that become more automatic. So the goal is always for things to be automatic. I don't care what the skill is. You know, yeah. I'm not, if, if I'm snatching my one rep max or back squatting my one rep, one rep max, I shouldn't have, I'm not thinking about if my right glute is firing or not. It just doesn't work like that. But if we see an athlete who's, who kind of shifts from side to side, or doesn't seem to be using both legs when they squat, we can use a variation of the squat, like a goblet squat or a lighter front squat or a light tempo squats to then teach that position. That is where they can be more conscious and focus on certain things. So you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's all nervous system modulated. You know, how the whole uh, shifting sympathetic, parasympathetic, it's really what we haven't figured out is exactly how to measure that. And like, yeah. you know, when, if, when and if the shift occurs, um, what's optimal, you know, cause you don't want to be like falling asleep when you need to be on, yeah. but you also don't want to be so fight or flight that you can't focus. And exactly. I know, you know, with your background, you're taught when things are, when the environment is most stressful, that's when you need to be the most clear headed. And, and so that it's, and it's not like you're going to take a nap. It's not calm, like, Oh, the warm blanket and like I'm falling asleep. It's just <laughs> you, your sympathetic state doesn't rise necessarily to the environment to the point where now you can't make decisions. And yeah. the, the same can be said with movement. If, if you're, if you're overthinking things or you're so like amped up, like you said, you're, everything's at a 10 and a 10, then your, your body is not going to react the way that you want. It's, it's going to, it's just going to go into survival mode. Um, so yeah, it, it sounds like that's kind of what you guys discuss is, is learning how to regress the movements, learning how to calm down a little bit, um, and then slowly build from there. And I think that's to your question originally was like, why is this, how does this work with longevity? Well, I just think it's, it follows the principles of, of motor skill acquisition. The more practice we get, the better we become at something. And so, yeah. And yeah. Go, go for it. Sorry, go no, for it. you go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it goes back to you always talking about like whenever we had a, you talked about, uh, I remember one of the internships or one of the weekends we had at the intern or at the clinical athlete seminar. Um, someone asked, how do you improve front rack position? And you were like, do it more. You literally said, you're like, Hey, do your front yeah. rack position more. That doesn't mean you squat in it. That doesn't mean you do anything. What you pretty much do is you front, you get in that front rack position and you get through it better. Um, and, that, and that really stuck home with me because of the fact. Yeah, totally. And so specificity is always king. It doesn't matter what it is. If you want to get better at something, the best thing to do is that something. And then there are other things that can supplement. But I, th I think like your front rack, for example, is, you know, specifically, I think people say, oh, the front rack is uncomfortable. Now I'm going to do these 10 other non-specific stretches or mobility drills to augment this very specific position. But if you just do more of the position, 
you will get that same short-term benefit, but you'll also get the long-term benefit of specificity and adaptation. So your tissues are going to adapt to the specific stress that you place upon them. This is why power lifters and 800 runners don't look the same. And, you know, and, and, and there's, there's nature selects some things too. You know, people who are more predisposed to a powerlifting body tend to pick things that are not like the 800 meter run. But it's, there's the point there is that your body has specific adaptations to the demands that you place upon them. And so if I wanna get better at the front rack, there's no better thing to do than to get into the front rack. If I wanna get better at squatting or be more comfortable in my positions, there's no better thing to do than to squat. And so the best, the best corrective for a squat per se would be something more like at a light load, you do tempo squats where you do three seconds down and three seconds up, or you pause at the bottom because we're getting a few things. We're, the time under tension, the, the amount of time now with a slow tempo gives you lots of time to feel the positions, to become familiar with the motor skill itself. The load is light enough that, it's, that you can recover quickly and, and you know, the frequency can be high, so just more practice, right? And then the, again, the time under tension or pause uh, increases your tissue's tolerance to the position. So it, it literally strengthens the connective tissue needed for that particular movement pattern. So as great, as specific as a, a tempo pause squat would be to gaining mobility, quote unquote, for the squat, what would be much less specific would be foam rolling my glutes to get more mobile in the squat and sacrificing time, you know, as a substitute, sacrificing yes. time that I could have been doing a variation very, very slow. And I think that's a mistake. And, and that's why sometimes we miss these long-term gains because we're doing things that don't actually provide a sufficient stressor for permanent adaptation. Your, your body doesn't care about it. It's like, oh, it made me feel a certain thing for a short time, but it's not going to change physiology long-term. And that's, that's something that's huge, man. Another question I want to get into, because we've been talking a lot about specificity. Uh, specific, I can't even speak right now. I know what you're saying. <laughs> I got, got you. you, everyone. Um, we've been talking a lot about that, right? But the, the yeah. fact that what I want to go to next in is a lot of the times what happens is a lot of tactical athletes have really bad ankle range of motion, really yeah. bad uh, control of the pelvic, really bad midline, uh, midline stabilization. And then we start seeing a lot of low back problems, right? Um, and, you know, I know you see it with your everyday client, I'm pretty sure, especially, you know, what is the leading cause to the athlete or the tactical athlete that has that lower back problems um and what do you usually do to correct it or what do you see with that I, you know i'll back up a step because i think that before we start blaming body parts or let's say this let's let's put it this way somebody can have textbook range of motion and still have pain so it's so so range of motion or you know ankle mobility um hip mobility, pick a structural thing that doesn't equate hundred percent to that. You're going to have pain. There are people, you know, it's the other way around. So workload actually. So when anybody comes in my door, the first tier that we address as far as intervention is their overall workload. The tactical athlete is, you know, compared to other professions is doing a lot of different things. Their, their workload is generally very high. And so if we're not necessarily addressing that and addressing their ability to come down and recover from that, how, you know, how's your sleep? How's your nutrition? I'm not even going joint by joint. I'm not even going structural because it's not going to matter. 
it's not going to trump the fact that they're just consciously, you know, consistently beating themselves down. It would be like this. If I kept punching myself in the face and my, no, seriously, think, think about this. If I kept punching myself in the face and my jaw started to hurt. And then I started to think of myself, oh, well, maybe my jaw is just not mobile enough. You know, maybe I'm lacking mobility in my jaw, but yet I keep punching myself in the face. Let's first address the stressor, you know, address the workload. That's, that's the underlying issue. And then we can work on, you know, mobilizing your joint if need be. But really, it's going to be about tolerance. So that is always tier one. And this, it's hard to go into depth on that because everybody's different. You know, I have to ask, what's your day-to-day -day like? You know, what's your training volume? Because you only have so much bucket. Your body doesn't mm -hmm. care. Your body doesn't allocate stress to different areas. It's stress is stress. It doesn't matter if it's stress from work, uh, home life, the gym or the job, it all gets dumped into one bucket. Stress is stress. And so we've got to talk about all of those things. And so I'm asking these questions. What's your week, you know, Monday through Sunday, what's your training volume like? What's your uh, work volume like? How, you know, all these. And so we've got to try to, to filter and modulate the workload so that they can recover from that. Then I'll get into more structural based stuff. Uh, but I think, you know, as far as positions or joints that tend to be restricted in range of motion uh, or certain patterns that you see like low back pain is really common, et cetera. It's really common for everyone to be yeah. honest. I think you're probably just seeing uh, the, the cause being sustained positions or uh, the equipment. So like footwear that's very protective yeah. and, but also very, uh, you know, it's basically like wearing a brace, you know, you're wearing a foot and ankle brace and a big old boot and a shoe that's not allowing your ankle to move. Well, your body is like, okay, he doesn't want, he doesn't need his ankles anymore. And so they're going to make ankles that don't move. And so it, it, a lot of it is just adaptation. You know, it, it's just, it's just specific adaptation of prolonged positions. Uh, are you a cop and you're sitting all day, you know, and then you have to, so let's say you're sitting for eight hours in the car and then you see something and you have to jump out of the car and go from a full out sprint yeah. and now your back hurts or you pull your hamstring. Well, it all comes down to preparation. So you should be able to, at the drop of a hat, do whatever you want. But have you prepared your tissues for that abrupt thing? So I don't even necessarily think, again, it's not necessarily a joint that, that's not moved or this, it's a, it's, a, uh, you, it's a preparation thing. So what we do a lot of times to mitigate things like non-specific low back pain or positional intolerances is go to the weight room and get some consistent work there. You know, are you, are you deadlifting? Are you doing things, are you, you keep pulling your hamstring every time you have to take off? Are you doing things like stiff leg deadlifts and slow eccentric uh, hamstring work to prepare your tissues for that abrupt change in direction? You know, that velocity curve. Um, is it, you know, ankle stuff, we load, we load the squat. I mean, honestly, we'll do like a split squat with, with uh, holding weights, two weights by your side, and we'll just have them drive their knees forward. We'll get them out of their, out of their footwear. So the footwear that is, you know, kind of bracing and bounding down your foot and your ankle, get out of that. Take some light dumbbells or kettlebells and just do some split squats barefoot where you're working on driving your knee forward, keeping your foot flat, but driving your knee forward and actually using your ankle. You know, I, th I think really what it comes down to is just use the joints. You know, if, it, if it's a shoulder, you know, put, get a light, just as a warm-up, light dumbbell, single-arm dumbbell, and go super slow and do sets of 10 to 15. 
you know, if you're holding, you got to let go of the ego a little bit, but if you're holding a 15, 20 pound dumbbell and you're just doing 10 or 15 slow reps, that is mobility work. Your body will react to that. Do it. Yeah. There's, there's still forces going through your tissues. So uh, be able to address these issues specifically, obviously, you know, it's tough to say, but in general, it's a preparedness issue. The tissues are simply not prepared for it's either too much chronic workload without a deload or it's, it's too much of an acute overload, like, like pulling your hamstring with sprinting. Um, and it, you know, as far as like sustained positions, maybe your, your trigger is sitting. I mean, sometimes it's no more complicated than getting, trying to get out of that position every 30 to 45 minutes or every hour if you can. Cause I think sometimes we get stuck, even if we have the choice to get up and move around for three minutes, we choose to stay because we want to feel more productive or like we choose this. I'm just going to keep, I got to get my work done. I got to keep, you know, got to get this in take a, No, every hour you take a five minute break. And I, and I think those like small, just aches and pains that come from, you know, just the day, I think go away. Your body's just looking for change. That's all. You just got to break the pattern somehow. Yeah. Dude, that's, that is huge, man. I like how you went on that because the talking about the tier levels, I actually, I'm rewriting the training Bible for soft fleet right now. Nice. And I'm actually, it's, it's, it's like, it's going to be part of my philosophy of how I see training a tactical athlete. And then Brett, the owner of soft fleet is also going to help me with it. And I just actually talked about like the tier levels or the triangle to like optimal performance for the human being or for the athlete. And the first tier or my first square of the, of the triangle or the pyramid was human and lifestyle. Mm. So homeostasis and lifestyle, because like you said, was, well, what is your training load like? Are you sleeping nine to 10 hours or eight to 10 hours a day? Minimum seven. Are you eating right? You know, what's your work stress at home or what's your work stress? What's your life stress at home? What's your boyfriend, girlfriend, married, whatever else. And then what is on top of that? Because once I can handle that and create less stress through that, now I can go ahead and create some kind of long-term adaptation and change through the next pillar, which I look at as movement. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And that, uh, no, that, that's, that's, that's huge. I mean, that's, that's perfect. It, the research is now being clear. I'm not, I'm not thinking about it. I'm not, I'm wondering why they're not doing this with, um, with, with tactical athletes yet, because those are great populations, but what they're seeing in sports like rugby and Australian football and soccer, which actually have similar demands where you have to have a, a big cardio base, but then there's bursts of power, right? They're looking at ratios of workload that are, are protective and that those increase risk for injury. So it's like, acute so if this week's overall workload is at a certain point greater than the average of the past month you're setting yourself up and so but it's the, the overall picture is just you need gradual increases but also trying to reduce the abrupt dips in training so like as for an example somebody who gets a little low back tweak or something like that and then takes three months completely off of training because they're scared that's the, that's the worst thing that you can do because now you've deconditioned the entire organism. And, the, mm -hmm. and what happens is you stop, you stop feeling pain because that's what ha I mean, Mother Nature is really good at doing her thing. Like you get a little tweak and it goes away. If you let it, no big deal, right? But if you don't do anything, you've lost your fitness. And then if you jump back into trying to do the thing that you were doing before, you're not, you don't have the threshold for that anymore. You don't have the capacity. So then you have a recurrence. And then your capacity drops even lower. And then you have a recurrence capacity drops. And then you start to wonder what's wrong with me. You know, or I must have a tight this or inhibited that. Or I need to go get an MRI. But if you really just look at the big picture, you, you simply, you didn't maintain your fitness. That's all. That's, That's all, all it is. Yeah. 
And, and so if, and again, that's, that's tier one. And, and I think that this talks about, this goes into pain as well, because pain is, is a subjective experience. Pain is not correlated with your image. It is just, it's just not, this is the pain science. Um, if you, you know, half the population has a bulging disc in the, in the technical uh, population, it's probably a higher percentage have these like pathological structural abnormalities, just athletics in general, but that are benign. They don't, necessarily have to be painful and people can also have debilitating pain without structural abnormalities so pain is a subjective experience if we can get the people to calm down a little bit to address things like sleep life stress like you said just getting them to just chill a lot of times that has a bearing on pain perception because all of that's you know that that just like wired protection uh, response all of that just starts to die down and pain uh, is intertwined within that, you know, to a large extent. So I think it's huge. I mean, what you're saying is great. I don't worry too much about like structure, uh, just from a, like a, um, like a medical standpoint, unless literally a joint is blocked. Like there's, there is something like a door frame that joint doesn't move anymore because there's something there that needs to be taken out or, or repaired, or you're getting nerve symptoms like, Hey, my foot's numb now and I can't lift my toes or like I'm getting my hands are numb or I'm like, I just pissed myself. Uh, and you know what I mean? Like I need to go to the hospital. Those are like obviously medical emergencies. But other than that, it's calming you down. It's reassuring you and it's building your program within your tolerance. And then we'll go into position because I'm always, I spin it from a performance perspective though. When we go down to tier two, as far as like position uh, and optimizing movement, I look at it more from a performance level because I can't okay. say that, oh, if we clean up, if we make your squat more symmetrical, you'll no longer have pain. But what I can say is that if you're pushing, generally, if you're, if you're able to use both your limbs equally, you're able to produce more power or you, you, know, you have more options as far as movement. If you're, if you're stronger, if you're more stable, all these things will help your performance. So that's kind of how I spin it there. And we're always looking to tweak uh, positions. You know, in, yeah. in the squat, a lot of times, like for example, with depth, if somebody's not uh, cannot attain the the depth in the squat that they desire, and maybe they also feel like their hip joints just kind of stop at a certain point, and they feel some tension like in the front of their hips, for example. Sometimes what we'll do is we'll play around with pelvic tilt, like you you know George, you've seen us do this lots of times, and you yeah. you, know, you have experience with this with athletes as well. You know we'll have them arch really hard or tilt their pelvis back. To more to a more level position and see yeah. if that ch that alters their depth at all or changes the way that the squat feels and sometimes it's as if you know they have new hips you know all of a sudden they can't achieve a depth they can achieve a depth that they weren't able to do before you know after all the smashing and rolling and and all that stuff and all we did was kind of tweak position go you know the saying with the squat the stance is also something that you can manipulate so if somebody uh insists on having like a toes forward very narrow squat and they can't seem to hit the depth that they desire well maybe we'll let them toe out a little bit to respect natural anatomy you know yeah. a lot of times that's a more natural position for for people's hips to hinge into in the bottom of the squat so there's always things that we can uh, manipulate you know from a positional standpoint to change movement for the better and it's nice because it's really quick so, I mean, yeah so, no it is yeah i know you I mean I, that too I mean, as an athlete, you know, who's experienced all of this, you know, I used to go into training for the day and take 45 minutes to warm up. 
Um, now I literally go in and it takes less than 15 minutes um, right, to legitimately yeah. like go through like my protocol of what I want to work for the day. And I have different protocols for different days. Uh, you know, I have a protocol for my back squatting day. I have a protocol for my snatch day. I got a protocol for cleans and front squats and all that stuff. But literally like it's just three or four different types of movements that create long-term, you know, movement longevity um, and really focus on that. And another big thing I want to talk about is how you talk about really lowering the pain, the athlete and, and, and get into that is because of the fact that I did a, like we talked about this pre-show was I did a podcast with Rob Wilson and we talked a lot about breathing. Right. Um, and I mean, that dude is a wizard about breathing. The dude's been studying it for 12 to 15 years and he implements it through power, speed and endurance. Um, and I'm kind of bringing it in through my own way, right? I'm trying to be unique and bring my own creativity into softly, which we're doing really well right now. I mean, if you look at our programming, we have prehab and muscle activation and movement prep work before you go into the day of our strength and stamina, whatever program you're on. And then once you're done, you actually have down regulation breathing work with down regulation movement work to really get the athlete to create that long-term and longevity. Um, and I really like how, you know, I'm doing the, I did a podcast with him. Now we're talking about bringing this in because i tell you what right now, a lot of tactical athletes fucking hate doing movement work. Mm -hmm. They hate it because they're the type A personalities where they think all they got to do is get in crush it and get the fuck out. And honestly, dude, like nowadays, I'm not gonna lie to you. I was in that mindset back in the day too. When I was just got back from Afghanistan, finished slaying work and doing all that kind of stuff. All I wanted to do was just hammer it, dude, and just get after it. And it ended up leading to me getting injured. And you know, now learning through experiences and the way the world works, right? And the way it evolves. Now I'm trying to recreate, not have this happen to the guys that are there now. And it really makes me happy to hear that, you know, having people like you who are able to put this information out and then really teach to coaches like myself. Cause I, I look at myself as a, I'm a professional coach now for a living. That's what I do for a living, you know, and being the head of human performance for softly, um, really looking at, Hey, how should we make this program sustainable for the rest of our lives? Because we talked about a pre-show also, there's a lot of military companies out there who are writing programming for tactical athletes and all they want to do to them is, prove that they can make them work harder. And you know yeah. what? It's not about always working harder. And that's something I learned through the internship, through maximum recovering volume, overload, you know, and all that good stuff. And I'm not gonna lie to you, have I overloaded athletes? Have I burnt athletes out? Have I broken athletes? Yes. And it's funny is when I was programming like that for such a long time, when I started making the changes to my new philosophy and foundations, athletes started questioning me, what are you doing? Why are you doing this for? Why am I going so hard anymore? And I really had to create that buy-in. And this is where it leads me into now when we talk about the buy-in and the trust of the athletes or the tactical athlete or how you create that buy-in and trust whenever you get a new athlete. And especially because, or how would you do it for a tactical athlete? Because that's such a huge key, right? Building the trust, especially for someone like you who's never been in the, the tactical athlete realm, dude. We talked about it before. It's, it's a wolf pack, dude. I and mean, if you're a wolf looking outside and you're trying to get in, you, it's really trying to educate these guys and really build that buy-in. And yeah. you talked about out with the 29th airborne is who it was you with the no, 21st airborne down in yeah down in fort knox so yeah no i agree and so buy-in is probably honestly buy-in is probably the most important thing the physical therapy research is very interesting we honestly we don't do a whole lot uh, mother nature does most of the things for us i'm talking like physical therapy in particular whether we want to you know uh admit it or not and what seems to be the biggest like uh variable as to a successful outcome is whether the patient likes us or not <laughs> is there i'm serious you know it's their expectation is there a relationship with the clinician and athlete is there a relationship with the coach 
an athlete. So this is exactly what you're asking. Creating buy-in is huge because it doesn't matter what, you could have this perfect program. I've got your workload, your ratio is perfect. You know, we've, we've got these drills to like fine tune your, your patterning and it's like, it's all perfect. But the, if the athlete doesn't believe in it, they're not gonna put the effort in and the, the, the kind of psychosocial aspect of these things is gonna take over and it's just not gonna work. I mean, or the chances are just gonna be much lower. And so you, it's, it's hard. I actually had an experience like this just before this podcast, literally what I was finishing up with a, with an office visit before I jumped on the call with you was uh, a lifter who had just been making the mistakes that we've talked about. He surpasses max recoverable, recoverable volume. He would take four months completely off and then he would hammer himself again and then again and again. And it was over the past three years that he's done this. And I said, I told him, listen, this was a programming. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with your structure, your body. He moved great. This was a programming error and it's going to be a programming solution. And it was hard for him to wrap his brain around that because in his mind he had messed with his program in that he had taken time completely off. And so what we, what, what it's hard is that I could just say, no, you're wrong. You know, stupid. I, you know, listen to me, obviously you were doing this wrong and I could make him, you know, and he could put the wall up. So what you can do to create buy-in, what you, what makes it more difficult is if you start to attack their beliefs or their expectations You've got to understand their expectations. You've got to ask questions. Why do you think, because a lot of times what they were doing in the past wasn't working and it's obvious, right? So you could just say that and like, well, obviously what you were doing wasn't working. So why don't you listen to me? And maybe, yeah. you, maybe you can get away with that. Um, and it is a pretty abrupt point. Like, oh, I can't argue with that. He's right. So let me try this. But what you can say is, well, why do you think that that wasn't working? Um, what did you do? You know, how could you have optimized your, your program better in this realm or this realm? Or like, what do you think about when you feel this in a certain movement, positioning wise, why do you think that is? So get an idea of what they feel like and so that they, they know that you're hearing them. Like at least they've been heard. Yeah. It's a big thing. You know what I mean? At least they, at least they know that what they think is out there. Now you can start to reshape their beliefs. And so what I did in this scenario is I started writing, I basically wrote down his entire timeline and I said, okay, this is what you did here in this month. Boom, boom, boom. Here were the gaps. This is where you should have kept training. This is why you recur. You know, this is why you had a, a recurrence because you got deconditioned and then you tried to push too hard. Boom! And we just laid it out. We started filling in the holes. This is what I, you know, this is what I recommend instead: uh, higher volumes, lower intensities to gain general physical preparedness, tissue tolerance, connective tissue resiliency. And so I started kind of filling in the gaps, but it also explaining with the rationale, you know, and not necessarily attacking what he was doing, but just providing him alternate explanations. And so I think that's really important key is to meet the person where they are, have them felt heard, and then you start to provide alternate strategies. You know, uh, understand them first, like this is what you were doing, this is potentially why it didn't work, here's my suggestion now. Uh, and, and generally the response is, is pretty good. So if you've got a room full of guys, you just need to explain yourself. And, you're, and also maybe you don't you know, turn their world upside down right away. So don't, you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes yeah. I'll let, if somebody's insistent upon uh, warming up for an hour and five, 55 minutes of that hour is just laying on the foam roller and they're wondering why, you know, they're not seeing any long-term change in their, in their training or positioning or, or whatever, I'm, I'm going to have the conversation with them about it. But I'm, what I'm not gonna say is I want you to ditch that thing right now, cold turkey, 
Because it's like, some, uh, it's going to be funny, but it's like, you know, telling, telling an addict to, to just stop. It's a habit. <laughs> you know, like just stop biting your nails. Okay, just don't do that anymore. I've been doing it for 15 years. I've you know, bit my nails for 20 years. Oh, don't do it anymore. I'm going to tire tie your hands behind your back. Like habits are very hard to break. And there's also emotions and beliefs that yeah. are instilled with that stuff. You know what I mean? Like if they have yeah. a video or if they have a, if they had a clinician or a coach that they really liked that they were very close with that told them to do something that's not actually going to do anything, they will have an emotional attachment to that intervention because it came from somebody that they liked. So yeah. if, as a new person, if you're coming in there and attacking these beliefs, you know, you may be met with resistance. So I guess, you know, one recommendation is just like, start slow. You know, maybe you suggest to them, okay, so that's your warm up. Um, why don't we do this? You know, why don't you do that for 30 minutes? But for the next 30 minutes, you do these drills or you do more squat practice or more or like running technique or something yeah. like that. Or you, inter you put it in between the yeah. movements. So like you said, and I think a great way to structure uh, like group settings is to have like, all right, this is my uh, general passive mobility. This is my activation. This is dynamic. And then this is training. But sometimes it's really also beneficial to mix those things in between. So if I'm using like a low level drill or even a foam roller, do it in between the higher level movement so that you get that response and then you can take it right into the pattern instead of just compartmentalizing it. Cause then you lose the benefits like your hour warm up, you've lost the benefits of the first 10 minutes. You know, you have to do it yeah. again. Uh, so, so that can be really helpful too. It's just, just giving a little bit and taking a little bit, I think is just a key to creating buy-in. Yeah, I really do enjoy like what you talked about there is like intermediate and like putting everything inside and like blending it so you don't take away their beliefs and don't take away what they feel has worked for them for the longest time. Um, you know, What's funny is like, I know when I got ready to go on patrols, there was always some kind of normal routine that I did to get ready, to get the mindset ready, to get my gun ready, to get my kit ready. I wore the same underwear and the same socks and the same boots, you know, to get ready to make sure that, hey, like if I wear all this stuff, I'm coming back alive. Like yeah. now I look back at it now, I'm just like, man, I did whatever I did to keep my mind there so I can be ready to rock and roll. And it's the same thing now on the athlete side of ways is, when they go into a weightlifting meet, they wear the same pair of socks, the weight, the same pair of tights. They want it the same exact way. They have the same exact because it builds what routine. Right. Um, but if the routine is not working, we need to fix it. And we got to learn how to create that. And like we talked about already, right? Don't take it away from them because you just can't have them drop it completely because now you're just taking away belief or you messed up the routine. Let's just go ahead and throw in little small things here and there. And by the time you know it, they're seeing, they're seeing the change and the adaptation. Now all of a sudden they have a new routine. Uh, going with that and that leads me into this dude talking about you know when I first found you you were actually having a controversy with Kelly Sarret on CrossFit about the knees out and fall and all that good stuff well then you got deeper into the foam rolling and smashing aspect of things mm -hmm. and you just put an article out I think yesterday you posted about uh the myths on foam rolling and smashing but dude I've seen nothing but like you talk a lot about that a lot right and you I know you joke a lot about it too I mean if you follow this guy on Facebook guys um he does have a professional side of him, but he also has a smart ass side of him, which I really do love about Quinn. You know, he's not super, super uptight. Um, he also likes to eat a shit ton of hometown buffet. Um, they close, man. They close. Hometown buffet is no longer around. It's depressing. Oh, so where did you go to now? There's a Golden Corral. There's, <laughs> a, uh, <laughs> there's a bunch of Asian buffets closed, so it's no big deal. Uh, All you can eat yeah. sushi is closed. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. 
I'm, I'm wishing they had a CC's pizza in the area because oh, I'd yeah. kill some people. Um, but going back into that now, so let's talk a little bit about like the belief in the foam rolling and smashing because I'm not going to lie to you, dude, like as I've come up as a coach and really built my philosophies and my foundation for how an athlete should move, I don't get rid of foam rolling or smashing. I just implement it too now into, you know, the dynamic and the activation and all that good stuff to really make the athlete feel as one. And I learned this through Max over at Training Think Tank. He's like, it's just a piece of the puzzle or just a piece of the elephant. And he used the five blind men example he was like you have five blind men and they all touch a piece of the elephant one blind man says he has the the tail the other blind man says i feel i feel like a, a tough leg one blind man says he feels the ear the other blind man says he feels the tusk the other blind man says he feels his nostrils and all that good stuff mm -hmm. and then when all five of them put it together what do they create they create this elephant um so that's the way i kind of look at movement now right like we have so many practitioners out there and we have so many people that are throwing out all this information and it's funny now because I remember you coming up, dude, and doing all the stuff that you were doing with, with what we're doing now with the movement and, you know, creating long-term movement. I'm seeing a lot of people following along with it now. I mean, everybody's doing it now. Like, it's the new thing to do. Um, right, just so, movement, just training. Yeah, just yeah. movement, right? Like, Talking, right? Just move. It's crazy, right? It's like, oh, you can just do movement on a recovery day. I always, yeah, I always joke, like, what I mean, what did we do without foam rollers? It's a, like, what did an athlete do before that came to existence? We, we're lucky that we're still, you know, a species. Yeah, uh, what did you do before? Like, so to your, I, I, I want to preface it, because I think, I do think whenever you question an idea, that's just kind of how the internet works. So you question an idea, and then that all of a sudden you become the anti of that idea. And so I'm kind of like uh, perceived as maybe like anti-foam rolling and anti this and that. My biggest thing is to understand the narratives and the mechanisms, and then people can decide whatever they want. My problem with foam, I would say my problem with foam rolling is not necessarily the, the implement itself, it's the narratives, it's the claims that are made that have no evidence to, to gotcha. substantiate them. That is my issue. That's not just with foam rolling. There's a lot of, I could make a laundry list of things in my profession alone, and I'm sure in, in the strength and conditioning field, nutrition, Anybody that works in any field knows that they're pseudo bullshit, you know what yeah. I mean? And then they, they wish they'll just speak to high heavens. So it's the claims that are made are my biggest thing. So, and then my opinions are, are based, I try to base my opinions on the evidence of, yeah. of the actual mechanisms. Like this is what it does, this is what it doesn't do. So we can go into that. The, so recent, foam rolling has actually got a decent amount of research on it right now. Obviously, you know, there can always be more, there can always be different ways to spin the, the studies and we need that right now it seems like the effects of foam rolling there are effects i'm not i've never said anything to the contrary there are effects of foam rolling the effects seem to be increased short term i'm gonna that's an important distinction short term increases in range of motion um short term changes in your perception of of pressure uh, they call it pain pressure threshold so literally, like if you poke on somebody, they rate it as being this tender, and then you foam roll, and then you poke them again, and they rate it as being uh, that tender, and you know, so that's pain pressure threshold. And then subjective reports of being less sore. So like delayed onset muscle soreness, foam rolling potentially has a modulation towards that. So I'm going to address those mechanisms. Short-term range of motion, there is an effect. I I will concede that. However, there is also short-term range of motion changes if you just get on the aerodyne for five minutes or if i wear a hoodie and a sweatpants and i turn the air up in my car 
of the heat up in my car on the way to the gym and I'm sweating my ass off when I walk in the door. Short-term range of motion changes, guaranteed. A dynamic warm-up creates short-term range of motion changes. So my, my question then, the way that I spin it is, I concede foam rolling creates short-term range of motion changes, but so do all these other things that potentially save you time, don't require an external implement like a foam roller are not passive and also allow you to do more practice of the movement. And so if just doing more squats gives you the same short-term range of motion change, just getting warm, literally warming up the pattern, then foam rolling, why would I choose foam rolling? There has to be something extra there. That's, that's my argument for me. Now, yeah. if you still choose, if your argument is, I, I like it because I simply feel like I don't, when I'm in the gym, my mindset, I just don't want to do anything. It's my routine. The foam roller is my time. It's probably not even the foam roller itself. It's probably just the time that you spend like mentally preparing yourself for training. It's like the ritual of the roller and probably just moving around on the ground gets you to loosen up. Like the, the roller doesn't even have to be there. It's just the fact that you're like flowing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's a ritual. And, that, and to that argument, if somebody comes to me with that stance, I'm like, that is cool. I'm totally fine with that as long as you concede that there is no structural change being made because that's <laughs> it doesn't show that, it, that a foam roller rearranges your collagen fibers like we're made of clay. And, and thank goodness that we're not that fragile, right? The barbell would annihilate us if we yeah. were. Um, there, and there's, there's, there's evidence to show that it's just not physiologically possible to create that amount of force to you know, layers deep and not just f tear your flesh to pieces. Like the only implement that can change your structure is a surgeon's scalpel. This is, this is not my opinion, this is the evidence as it stands now. So that narrative is gone. That's, that narrative probably uh, irritates me the most because it's just not true, it has no evidence, zero. The, the range of motion thing, I just addressed that. Yeah, if you wanna still do it in place of these other things, I wouldn't do it in place of the other things that create short-term range of motion changes, but if you wanna do it in conjunction, I completely understand. I simply decide not to because I'm under time constraints in the gym. I want to do the things that are specific to what I want to do. And I just do more of them. Oh, that first set of squats feels like shit. I accept it. I just do more squats until they don't feel like shit anymore. And then boom, I'm warmed up. Now the other mechanism is pain pressure threshold. I, uh, my argument there is like, so what? You know, it's like if I, if I hit my knee against a table, if I bang my knee against a table and I rub it, like intuitively, you're like, ah, shit, and you rub your knee, you know, real fast and it takes the pain away, it's the same mechanism. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like who cares? So, so I get it, you know, if, you're, if your hip feels tight and you wanna take a lacrosse ball or a foam roller and roll on the tissues around the area that feels tight and that changes your pain perception for a short time, I'm totally cool with that, that's whatever. But it's, it's, no more, it's nothing more special than that. It's just a short-term yeah. sensory overload. It's again, if I jam my finger with a basketball and I'm like, ah, shit, and I shake it, it's the same idea. My body's intuitively trying to create another sensory stimulus to override the pain. So that's, that's it. I mean, that, I, don't, I don't say that mechanism is not there because it, it seems to be shown that it is with a foam roll, but my thing is like, so what beyond that? Um, and then... The, what was the last one that I said, the other mechanism? Oh, range of motion, or uh, range the late onset muscle soreness. Muscle soreness. Yep. So they have, they have shown, or they, you know, a couple studies have shown that if you do a really hard workout, they, they, they crushed these, these people. They made them do like 10 sets of 10 uh, stiff leg deadlifts or something stupid. Like Jeez. they were probably crushed. And then over the course of 72 hours, they did a control group, so no foam rolling. And then they had the, uh, the experimental group do foam rolling at like 
after post training, 12 hour bouts, 24 hour bout, 40 hour bout. And at the end of this, at the end of the 24 and 48 hour period, the foam roller group perceived less soreness. Oh, wow. At, at, at 72 hours, both groups were the same. So uh -huh. here's my thing. Here's my thing. At, at the end of the day, the outcomes are going to be the same. Now, if at that 24 to 48 hours, you're supposed to train again and you're so freaking sore that you can't move, okay. Now, may, I, I can see the argument that I just need to jump on this roller just to modulate this pain. I think it's the same as the sensory thing that we just talked about to modulate this pain a little bit so I can get through my training. But just know that at, at the end of the 72-hour period, we're all going to be the same. Like Mother Nature is going to play out the same way. There was no actual structural or physiological effect that was any different. And there's also, we cannot ignore the potential for placebo because you, cannot, you, you couldn't blind the participants. They knew they were foam rolling. So they knew they were getting something. Yeah. You, you simply cannot ignore the response to that. Now, the argument is always, well, I don't care if it's a placebo. If it works, it works. Uh, yeah, kind of. But like, if for me, if I'm going to prescribe something, I can't just, it's, it's, it's like an ethical thing. I can't just rest on the fact that it's a placebo and hope that you get the placebo effect. Like I'm going to educate you on this may not actually be doing anything, but you may also be less sore a day or two after like, and if you feel like that's worth it, then go for it. So that's where I would generally recommend if somebody wants to foam roll for a pro prolonged period of time, they do it on rest days or post training if they have time, almost as more of a ritual to help them calm down and wind down and more, yeah, just get, just get that like overall recovery effect and not, I'm still I'm not really convinced of like the local uh, effect. The other one is blood flow. Uh, we're increasing tissue temperature. That, that, so the, the foam rolling to increase tissue temperature is actually just uh, debunked by a study that showed that 60 minutes, or I'm sorry, 60 seconds of foam rolling doesn't increase tissue temperature. So then the argument is, oh, well, I got to do it for longer, but that's just more time. Yeah. You know, so like jump on the bike. But the, the blood flow thing is interesting to me because obviously exercise increases blood flow and it increases blood flow systemically and more internally to the internal structures that a foam roller just doesn't get to. Yeah. So going back to what I said before, I'm not anti-foam rolling and I'm like you. Uh, I, you know, if somebody really likes it and they're just, they have those expectations and beliefs and they're not ready to let anything go completely. I'm like, all right, yeah, fine. Do it small, small bouts, uh, minimum effective dose, you know, get that short-term change in, in per, uh, pain perception or range of motion and then do a movement pattern, you know, and, and that's fine. Yeah. I'm totally cool with that. I'm just, I want to make sure that people understand the actual mechanisms and then we can kind of address the false narratives that are thrown out there a lot. I'm not gonna lie, bro. You literally just blew my mind with all that because of the fact of how deep you got into that. Like, I've never really like researched too much in depth on foam rolling. Um, just, you know, I, I just take it from experience as for me trying to do foam rolling, lacrosse balls and voodoo bands, I've hurt myself even using that. And, you know, knocking on wood, I've, I've stayed very injury free by going the route that I have nowadays. Um, and like I said, you just gave, like I said, it's, I always love talking to you, man. You always give me something new. I'm always open to listen. And that was it right there, dude. I think a lot of the listeners listening right now are going to be like light bulb. Wow. Um, and I know you're not trying to change people or how do you say, I know you're not trying to tell people to stop using the foam roller, but you're trying to have them think other ways to help yeah. promote movement. And that's all it is, right? That's, that's all we're trying to do at the end of the day. And my mind always like you, you should never be set 
Like uh, every time, anytime you have a discussion, this is not formal. This is any type of discussion that you're having. It could be politics, religion, nutrition, you know, all the, the, the trio right there of people who get the most heated. <laughs> I'd put foam rolling as like number four. It seriously amazes me the emotional responses that come with like discussing foam. Like, why are you so attached oh, yeah. to this fucking thing? Uh, but it's it, anytime that you're having a discussion about something like you should always ask yourself, what would I change my mind if the, if, if a certain amount of evidence were to be placed in front of me like what would make me change my mind and and you have to be able to do that because if you're not going to change your mind even with strong evidence then now you're just an asshole and there's no point in talking to you like you know exactly. what i'm saying like and you know what i'm talking about with politics. Oh, yeah. i'm sure that you've had discussions about uh you, you know politics and, and funds of the military like just in-depth discussions and you want to just rip the person's head off because they're not they're not listening or they're not coming down off their stance because they're just so emotionally tied to it. Um, and so, and it's the same with this stuff. So always ask yourself, what would be the evidence that would make you change your mind? For me, in regards to foam rolling, I would need to see evidence that in a very controlled scenario as a standalone intervention, we have measured some type of structural change to the tissues. Like after a certain dosage, we can measure like a change in the sarcomere length and it stays that way. Or like the the tendon penation or like the muscle penation and the, the way the tendon attaches to the muscle, somehow that junction changes some way or is manipulated in some way. We can, first of all, find a fascial adhesion, measure it, because that's not something that we can do either, by the way. And then <laughs> you do an intervention like foam rolling and somehow the tissue has now been degraded. Like we can measure that with, with uh, ultrasound the way that we do with tendinopathies and stuff like that. I would need to see that evidence then I would need to see that that change in structure even matters. Like what, how does it correlate to increases in function, increases in performance, decreases in injury rates, decreases in pain perception that we haven't even gotten a yet. We haven't gotten the first part. So how can we make these assumptions about B? And so that's where we're at. And that's what, that's the type of evidence that would make me change my mind. But I would, ha if I saw that and it may be something that comes in the future, then I, I would have to revisit my stance and I'm totally open to that. I wouldn't like it. Nobody likes questioning themselves and, you know, changing their stances and their biases, but that's what we need to see. Otherwise my current stance and the current literature, as far as I know, seems to state, you know, what we just discussed. Yeah. And there we have it guys. Uh, we're coming up on our time block here. I know Quinn's a busy man um, and I got some stuff to do too also, but Honestly, this was a great podcast. Um, I, I think we hit a lot of points for a lot of athletes and tactical athletes in general of where we're going with this and how we have an open mind to really understand movement uh, for longevity. And that's all I push realistically here um, with the soft community, especially the LEO and the tactical athlete in general. Again, like we talked about it in the pre-show was like, they don't care what they're doing. They want to know how to do it so they can make it happen and keep it as simple as possible. Um, for these guys, you even say yourself, you're talking about how it's like teaching a freshman how to do something compared to a senior. Um, and I think it's super true as an instructor at the schoolhouse at BRC, when I had to go in there and teach these guys, I had to bring it back down from like a seven. I had to go all the way down to a two, even though these guys have graduated school, gone through boot camp, gone through their ITB infantry training, and they have the highest GT score in the books to come and become a reconnaissance Marine. I still had to dumb it down. Um, and I think that's a great approach that we're doing here and what you're doing with clinical athlete and all your seminars and um, with juggernaut dude. So, you know, with that being said, dude, how can these, how can everyone uh, follow you, get a hold of you if they had any other questions? Um, you know, what do you do in general for when people need to get a hold of you and just follow your information? 
Yeah. Well, first of all, again, thanks for having me on, man. It was, it was an absolute honor. I, you know, I hope anything that we talked about, I hope it's, it, you got some helpful tidbits for, for your audience. And uh, for me, I'm, I'm over social media. One, the good thing about having a weird name is like, you can just Google my name or like search Quinn Hennick, H-E-N-O-C-H on Instagram or Facebook. I'm going to be the one that pops up. I think I'm like the only one. So Instagram, uh, Quinn.Hennick, DPT is my Instagram. Um, Facebook, Quinn Hennick, and I have a coach's page. That's Dr. Quinn Hennick PT. And I, you know, you can message me on social media. I respond. It may not be within the time frame that, you know, I, but I get to all messages and also may not be the answer that you want, but you know, you will get a response. And then clinical athlete uh, is a directory of healthcare providers. And so who understand athletes, so that's the point. We put that directory together for you guys. So if you need a, a, healthcare, a healthcare professional who understands you, it's not going to just be like, well, you just stop training like that or just, you know, Rub some Bengay on it and you'll be all right. They don't know anything about your training. You want to find a clinician who understands that stuff because they do it. Go to clinicalathlete.com and search the map for a, a provider in your area. It's free. It's a free resource for you. Um, and we're on social media there too, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube. You know, my YouTube, all the exercises that I prescribe my athletes are on my personal YouTube channel. And they're just short videos that with no ads. It's just like, oh, I'm going to send, I send George this video. I may I'll just throw it on my YouTube for everybody else to see too. So uh, the, yeah, those are a good start. And if it's something that needs to be addressed in a little bit more detail, then we can talk, you can shoot me an email and then we can just kind of go from there. But social media is a good place to start. Awesome, dude. Hey, thanks, Quinn. I appreciate it. And again, guys, his, his last name is not Medicine Woman. That is just a nickname he has. So again, make sure you look him up. All right. Uh, thanks, Quinn. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, guys.